1: Good morning, you're on the Deadline Report with Ben Virgin Investigates, care of Fresh FM, the call signs for that are 107.2 for Nelson City Nelson and Tasman districts 104.8 Eastern Golden Bay 95.0 and good old Blenheim 88.9 My very very special guest today is Michael Field who pretty much when I was growing up if I wanted to know about what was happening in the Pacific, Michael was my go to man, what he didn't know about the Pacific wasn't pretty much Will actually worth knowing about if i've got my bio information correct michael's been working as a journalist in the pacific for about three decades give or take a year or two he has been banned in over four nations he's covered both the 2000 and 2006 coups in fiji which i had him banned one of the countries he's been banned in he's produced several books on the pacific including the fiji coup uh, and plus books on the issue of blackbirding good afternoon michael or good morning depending on whether you're listening to us live or on the podcast how are you doing
0: I'm doing fine, and I, I, I wish I'd only had three decades reporting it. But sadly, it's about five now. I could have done with a, another couple.
1: Well, I was actually wondering about that because it, it, I was looking at what the, the bio was, and, and it's literally, I can remember like going to, to visit my mum, and it would always be, we'd be listening in the morning to the, uh, a nine to noon, and I'm, I was sure that we went back further than that. So how, when did you begin your, your career into, into uh, journalism, and more importantly, why?
0: I, I actually began... 1971, I have no idea. I had no other vision to become anything else. I didn't want to be a train driver or a fireman or anything. I was just, I think, a a, a gossipy little kid in Whangarei. Mm -hmm. And uh, by remarkable coincidence, looking back on it, I knew a few Pacific Islanders either as Fijian rugby players or a couple of Samoans across the road from us and things. And so... I more or less started with it, and uh, both as journalism in the Pacific, although I spent and have spent a lot of time outside of the region as well. But it was, I guess it was, <laughs> was preordained or something, but uh, I would like to have been a scientist and invented a cure for cancer, but it wasn't to be. I was a journalist.
1: Well, you've been a pretty. Fantastic journalist, if I do say, Michael, And that what's always been very apparent with anything you report on the Pacific issues is, first of all, is your great love and empathy for the people of Pacifica, but also that whole just that intimate boots on ground knowledge that, you know, when you're talking, listening to you talk about whether it's the Fiji coup or Spades, it's almost like you know these people intimately. And if you don't know them, I'm pretty certain that you have those sort of, you've you've worked very hard to establish networks throughout the Pacific, haven't you? Well... uh
0: not only do I know them, some of them actively dislike me as I dislike them. <laughs> um, it's a fairly visceral sort of relationship you get in the Pacific. But also, you know, I, I spent, of, that, of of those decades, I, I really regard Samoa as home because my children are Samoan and, and, and the Samoan language is what more or less fills my day along with actually more recently Gujarati and Hindi. But the Samoan part of it is constantly there and last year I was up in Samoa as a sort of a first post-COVID trip and it, it's quite striking. The one thing that you find there and in other places is you can be out of the country for a long, long time and then you bump into somebody you knew and the the streets of Apia or Suva and they just continue the conversation as if the the four year gap or the five year gap had never occurred and I I just think it's fantastic and uh, as I'm sort of a fairly stoic loner type character it's a good foil to have all these gregarious people who embrace you and want to know everything about you and so it's, it's a, I, I've never been in a Pacific country and I include places like Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands during the troubles where I felt disliked or discouraged or in danger you always felt that there was a degree of mandatory hospitality that you benefited from
1: I want to kind of cover, and and, you know, as you're talking, there's probably about four or five questions that are jumping in my head. But I'm I'm going to be reasonably disciplined, and I'm going to take us back kind of, to, I asked you to pick two particular songs for this particular show and normally what I do is I wait till halfway through and then I play them but the the, the first song today which I'm going to get you to pronounce because I murder languages bilingually, I, I think it kind of really points to the fact that when you're covering something you don't just look at the here and now and the future you have this whole bridge of history that comes with you and you really understand that history from the, from the local indigenous viewpoint so can I just get you to, to talk a little bit first about the first song that we're going we're gonna to play I'm going to get you to talk about the song we're going to Play it. and then we'll talk a little bit about the, but a bit more about some of the questions I want to ask you, and then I want to come back to this particular the backdrop story. But can we first of all the first song I think is I'll pronounce it, and you can correct me. Loi Mayata, and I'm sure Loi I'm not Marta pronouncing e. it.
0: Malangi. Listeners who fell in love with. Moana, the Disney movie, will recognize, but which has essentially got two versions of, about it. And my passion for the song is like, several strong. It's by the, the group Tavaka, the Polynesian Tokelauan Tuvaluan group Tavaka. And I was lucky enough way, way back when they first started to get to know them because they lived not far away from me in Auckland. And I, I was particularly inspired by the, their creativity and the way in which they used Polynesian language languages, notably Tokelauan and Samoan. And I had a little role as a journalist in getting Te to sing a song about one of the islands of Tokelau, which is now no longer part of New Zealand, but which has gone to the United States. So I love that song, but when Moana came out. I recognise this particular song. and In in the movie, it's a a lonely story about a moana on the beach wanting to get out and go away and see. But for me, it's about a, a deep tragedy in Tuvalu on the island of Waitupo, one of the eight or nine atolls of Tuvalu. And it was a school fire, and it's about the... Nineteen people who died in the fire, all but one of them schoolgirls, and that happened in two thousand. And at the time, I was correspondent for Ashon's France Press, and I sort of knew the story first, and then got to know it really intimately, both in Fiji and Tuvalu, and it's just one of these things that, you know, do, we... Do you we just want to tell us a little
1: bit about the backdrop of, of the, what the story is, the tragedy behind that?
0: It's a school fire, basically, and the dormitory caught fire, and this sad point about it is that the girls who were boarders at the school, and it's Tuvalu's top high school. It was founded by a New Zealander, Motufua Secondary School. And the, the girls were locked in so that boys couldn't get to them. And somebody had a candle and it set the dormitory on fire. And the consequences on a country which has only got 6,000 people when 18 of your top schoolgirls die is just utterly catastrophic.
1: You gave me the briefing notes. You said that you know that would be the equivalent of eight thousand New Zealanders or twenty five thousand Australians dying. So it yeah, was a huge and, and, and deal. Not to only work. that,
0: but your best hope. These are the the top students in the country. So it was quite something. <laughs>
2: Fano, no, no,
0: You know, one of the problems of of the job that I do is that stories come and go very quickly, mm. and uh, this was in 2000, and then shortly after, the Fiji coup took place, the George Spade coup took place, mm-hmm. and I ended up in Suva, what turned out to be about three continuous years as a consequence of that. But I remember coming one night into the restaurant in the hotel to have a dinner and there was a solitary New Zealander sitting there who I recognised. He was Professor Tony Taylor from Victoria University, who was a psychologist. He's he's dead now. And he had done all the counselling on the Air New Zealand Erebus crash and he'd been up to Tuvalu just before and was... It was counselling the people of Tuvalu essentially, and it was a fascinating, deeply emotional story to hear. It and although I've done a lot of disasters since the tsunamis and earthquakes and cyclones and things, the Waitapu fire and and that and that little piece of music just bring the out. The reality that the Pacific, yes, it looks like paradise. Yes, it's beautiful, but it's also a very
1: hard and harsh environment. Well, that, that that's what I wanted to sort of ask you a wee bit about because you know th- there is a generalisation that you know unless you are actually listening to perhaps Radio New Zealand, that we don't really hear a lot in New Zealand about the Pacific. And something blows up, and when we do, the coverage comes across as being very sort of uh, Western centric. Whereas you know when you're talking about the, st- the tragedy at the, uh, the Mutuafua School, it's it really brings home the fact that. That they, you know, long after the cameras have gone, the people of Pacific Islands have really got a lot of sort of issues on their plate, which have been not really issues that I've created to begin with. Is, is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, it, it is. But there's also, I'd go one step further to say that these countries demonstrate a certain stoic heroism, and that they cope with it, they get on with it. And although these days and more so these days, sort of a great amada of aid can often arrive, as we saw in the recent Tongan volcano. These are people who survive. They know what's required. The school fire was clearly an astonishing thing to have to deal with, but I, in my own mind, have no doubt that they would have dealt with it, even without the outside help, because you go to some of these countries, like some of the more remote countries in the Pacific and you think how do people live here and yet they do and then you go in the evening I'm thinking here of the atolls of Tokelau (laughs) they're so remote and so they look so unforgiving and yet in the evening they have fabulous dances and they sing together and they compete together and you recognize a A vibrant, excited, innovative culture is going on. And although disasters can be quite brutal on everybody and are, and I can tell you that the journalists that do it as well often suffer deeply about the whole Mm. thing. Uh, I have friends, uh, particularly the Aitapi tsunami in Papua New Guinea, which was very bad. They they get on, they're survivors, and and they're, they're
1: a tough but elegant people, all of them. If, if I can sort of sideline you the issue about the, 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 the aid that comes up, like one of the things that's been I've, I've heard a lot of reference recently is in Fiji, and they keep talking about this US military camp called Black Rock, and it's meant to be a humanitarian aid camp. I, I guess the two questions is, number one is, where does that name actually originate? Is that referring to the Black coal or are they literally now, now naming bases after and is it really a humanitarian base, or is it is it this no, issue no. that the Pacific is sort of gets caught between the forge and the anvil of greater geopolitical issues?
0: Well, it's not a US base; it, it's definitely a Fiji base. It was the the Fijians uh, contribute quite large forces to the United Nations peacekeeping mm. force. Uh, I might add, they seem to have trouble getting the United Nations to pay them for it, and okay. the UN has got a severe debt to Fiji, financial debt. Yeah. And, and personally, I don't think it's worth the chop for Fijians to be doing it. But that's another issue. Yeah. But Black Rock, I think, was always there. It was It's just outside of between Nandi and Laotoka. Right, and yeah. it was originally set up to offer training to those that were going on peacekeeping missions. But in the wake of all this China stuff, the various... The United States, Australia, New Zealand have put in a lot of resources, and BlackRock is looking to be more than just the UN. Mm. But I I, I caution people about getting too excited about the whole thing because the Fiji military is in a pretty lamentable state Mm. and has been for a long time. And if they were, let let me be clear, I don't think the Fiji. People need an army, but they, in the various ways, have clearly gone along and said they want an army. Well, it's got to be made more professional and even... As we are talking, there's a big new scandal breaking in Australia around a Fiji army officer who's been seconded to the Australian Army, who's wanted for torture. That's and, right, yeah, yeah. And uh, so,
1: so, is it just to quantify that? That's the the Fijian officer that was involved in the last coup. Is he? That, is that what the, yeah, the torture Yeah, uh, No,
0: more recent than that. Okay, uh, I actually don't recall him being involved in the coup at all. But there were various incidents in the ten years under Varengi, Bainimarama, where these incidences are said to have taken place. And one has to say, and I've certainly written it up at length, is that Bainimarama and his officer office of corps were brutal and continued to be brutal for quite a long time. But uh, I think that the thinking in Australia, New Zealand, and Britain and the United States is that if they can make the Fiji military more professional, that they won't <laughs> they won't stage coups and they won't torture their own people. I think it's a a big stretch. And when you look at the horrific state that the Fiji healthcare system is in, today, just this last month, the newspapers are running heroic stories of Children walking to school over 10 kilometres a day, and over rivers that have no bridges and things. Fiji's got a whole lot of other really important things they could be spending the money that they are spending on Black Rock and the 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 Fiji military forces.
1: Is they that afford, is that true but, of all the Pacific? I mean, I know you're quite critical. A lot of the Pacific leadership do. Is that an across the board bl- a blanket, or do you think it's Fiji is the worst case scenario
0: for the military?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: There's not much military in the Pacific. Uh, well, I was just gonna. I was
1: thinking about it because of the comparison to the Tonga, because there's situations unfolding in Tonga at the moment too, isn't there with the relation to democracies is a bit of a fragile situation in Tonga? Or, or am I reading too much no, into no, that?
0: No. No. You. <laughs> I. I'm really surprised that the New Zealand media has not even glanced at what's happening currently in Tonga and the king trying to control the government and firing this minister and that minister and things. But as for a military involvement, Tonga's got a small force, which are now called His Majesty's Armed Forces, (laughs) which is little more than a palace guard with some fisheries patrol vessels i don't believe they threaten the population certainly they're not large enough and papua new guinea's got a a significant army but in the keeping of all the issues around papua new guinea which are chaotic and complicated and i did go to i was present in papua new guinea during the sandline mutiny which was Mm. an army mutiny Mm. i don't think they threaten the existence of the state and no. and one thing I like to remind New Zealanders is that despite everything about Papua New Guinea, it's bigger than New Zealand, it has more people than New Zealand, and it potentially has a greater GDP than New Zealand because it's an extremely wealthy country. It's
1: well, well that, that, that's what I wanted to ask you about in terms of, if we take, I want to go the, the invasion of Manoeuvre uh, and Tonga Islands in 1970, but if we take that as our bench place and we go Manoeuvre Islands, Vanuatu 1980, Fiji 1987 to 2000, and Solomons, how much of these ethnic issues are driven by ethnic disputes or how much of them are driven by by mining companies.
0: Well, the only, the, the major mining one, of course, is mm. and Well, I was thinking and, about the role of
1: Emperor Mining played in the first coup of Sevilla Bambuca, but is that... Uh,
0: well I, I, I mean I've written As you observed At the beginning I've written A number of books On Fiji And coups And the one Irritating aspect Of it all Is that You never actually Have a clear idea Of what the final Truth of anything is
2: Yeah
0: <laughs> Particularly in Fiji And it's it's Actually all Sort of recycling Again because As we all know Sid of any Rambuka Is back again As a democratic Prime minister <laughs> furiously apologising For everything He did back in 78 So 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 he's very confusing, and I've been one of those, and um, it's not an original thought, Mm. is that Fiji needs a kind of proper reconciliation process to work out really what happened. So you're talking about something um, like
1: that happened in South Africa, like its own truth and reconciliation. Yeah,
0: oh, and and something I've always admired the Waitangi Commission's report, where they you know they get historians and and leaders together and work out over a very lengthy process what actually happened in Aotearoa. I personally think places like Fiji need that, and until had a truth. And reconciliation process It's only speculation as to what Goes on with say Emperor Goldmines And Rambukescu or Mm. the exclusive resort in Bainimarama who or who was behind overthrowing Lysenia in Garisei in Fiji mm. you just you just never know and it's, you
1: so know, if, it's if we, a if we move forward and we move except that we're never going to get to the bottom of the line but i I mean when when you have been reporting you, you don't come across as being pro-western or pro-china I mean you're, you're equally critical of both of them do you feel that the Pacific at the moment is in a delicate situation between that competition between those two superpowers?
0: Well, a remarkable coincidence. I, I've been doing on Substack a, a long, slow piece about the Tongan royal family, and my argument is that how the Tongan royal family, since its founding, is slowly and systematically looted the kingdom and I called my pieces uh, The Lost Kingdom and just at the very moment I happened to be concentrating on 1976. It's like reading something out of of a crystal ball. New Zealand, Australia, the United States and Britain were in a raging panic because the Soviet ambassador in Wellington had gone to Nuku'alofa to present credentials to the king and it was taken as global alarm that Honga was about to become a Soviet naval base <laughs> and there was going to be fishing bases in Baval and the king was to, to go to Moscow. All that was happening in 76, we've done again with China. And it's like, hey man, didn't you learn the lesson in 76 that it's not worth panicking over?
1: Well, that um, that's the argument that John Pilcher did in, his, uh, in the coming war. He, you know, He sort of say that, that there had been a sort of a, a hyped up exaggeration of actually how much of a threat the Chinese were to the Pacific. Totally.
0: I'm not solely depending on this particular aspect of mm. my argument. I always thought we were overdoing this on China. But after the global panic in 1976 about Tonga becoming a, a red dar in the blue Pacific, it all sort of faded down and then it emerged that the king of Tonga had gone to Tripoli and had met Muammar Gaddafi and the Libyans yeah. were coming. <laughs> and so another new uh, yeah. panic blew up. You know, so by 77, the Pacific was looking hot and ready to go so Russian
2: Libyan the whole that, thing that, is, that whole Russian terrible. Libyan thing
1: is interesting because I mean you you start to see the emergence of characters like Adnok Khashoggi you know emerged in that whole period along with again sort of Israel but I mean Adnok Khashoggi I, I found when I looked at the Pacific was that the Saudi connection had a lot more influence in the in the Middle East I think in some ways than China I think I've you know I found lots of cases where they were running behind the scenes and actually you know spending money and influencing things oh yeah
0: I, I get great pleasure out of it but I shouldn't really, is that there was a cohort of carpetbaggers and weirdos and (laughs) political creeps like you mentioned Minerva Reef. That was all people who came and went and caused enormous complications. And in the case of Tonga, for example, where you go through the Libyan thing and the Chinese thing, then the following year this chap who's said to be CIA or not IA, a guy called John Meyer is in collusion for creating a tax haven bank thing with the mm. royal family and there's millions sloshing around and all sorts of characters are
1: moving through the scene. Well, it's sort of um, a good, I, I want to just take a quick bit of a break, but very quickly, it's like, I also noticed a lot of people talk about those 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 73 creeps, is that a lot of them had links into the Atlas Network, which a lot of those, this our recent New Zealand election, there's like people like the spin-off have been talking about the role of the Atlas Network within, you know, Pacifica and New Zealand politics.
0: Well, it's... It, it's not new, and I like to remind people that the first Prime Minister of Samoa was an American carpetbagger in the 19th century. Oh, who was that? <laughs> a guy called Steinberger and when it was discovered that he wasn't who he was the Royal Navy kidnapped him and took him away to disappear but uh, <laughs> it's a great movie in there because was a serious love interest and ships and guns and the whole work well, well, what we're going to do is
1: we'll take a bit of a break and I want to come back to that but I also want to link into things like your work on the, on the historic side of it from like people like Billy Hayes and the Blackbirders you're on the Deadline Report with a Ben Virgin Investigates care of our special guest Michael Field the engineer has been waving at me furiously letting me know that actually we've run out of time today so sad news is that's uh, all we've got time for you today from michael field the good news is that michael's agreed to sit down and talk to me so come and visit us next weekend because michael is going to be back with us to tell us more about the pacific and what he doesn't know about the pacific isn't worth knowing so uh, i'm very very honored to have him on board so till next week see you all this is deadline report with ben virgin investigates
0: If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a programme on our station,
2: please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details.